The attorneys sat behind large wooden tables in the makeshift courtroom, shuffling their papers and scribbling some last note, notes on the pages in front of them. The witnesses sat nervously, unsure of how they'd handle the pressure of the witness stand. The defendant, an unassuming elderly man, sat quietly. His eyes hinted to a life filled with adventure and struggle, of beauty and of pain. The bailiff speaks, all rise, and the judge, robed in black, enters the room. He speaks too, calling the case of the Jewish people versus Avraham Avinu, Abraham our father. The trial had begun. Abraham was on trial for attempted murder of his son Isaac. This was the scene as it unfolded at Temple B'nai Shalom in Fairfax Station, Virginia on Rosh Hashanah 5768. We were putting, on, putting Abraham on trial for his actions from this week's Torah portion, Vayera. The role of judge was played by an actual working judge, same with the lawyers, skilled professionals applying their talents to engage us more deeply with our sacred text. The witnesses were played by various volunteers from the congregation and, as it turned out, employees, of which I was one. And I played the role of Hagar, Sarah's slave and second wife of Abraham. As a witness, I highlighted the cycles of trauma initiated by Abraham during their life together, establishing patterns in his life that would relate to what happened or almost happened to his son Isaac. My mission was to provide enough evidence to justify a guilty verdict by the jury. As a 20-something at the time, this was probably my most in-depth Torah study experience, and maybe still to this day, honestly. We met as a group weekly the month before Rosh Hashanah, delving into as many Abraham narratives as possible, crafting arguments for both the defense and the prosecution together. I'm not sure whether it was the fact that I was playing Hagar, who obviously had some complicated feelings uh, toward Abraham, or whether I simply had not investigated the life of Abraham previously. But the more we studied, the more I found myself empathizing, not with Abraham, but with each of his family members, every single one of them having been treated as means to an end, each one not valued for who they were, each one expected to follow the path laid out by God for Abraham, not for them. As I read this week's Torah portion, I was brought back to this moment of this mock trial, and I found myself still looking at this text through the lens of building a case against Abraham. Admittedly, it doesn't really take that much effort to make a case against the poor guy, for instance, in these chapters of just this one Torah portion, we read how Abraham willingly places Sarah in danger to protect himself as they travel through the kingdom of Avimelech. We also see as Abraham stays silent as Sarah abuses Hagar. Abraham also banishes Hagar and his son Ishmael into the wilderness, perhaps to die. And Abraham takes he and Sarah's only child, Isaac, up Mount Moriah with the intention of sacrificing him. While many of these episodes are familiar because of how the story ends, with Isaac growing up, Isaac marries Rebecca, and they build a family of their own through their sons Jacob and Esau. It's as if we ignore or brush over the difficult pieces of the story that came before, much of this Torah portion. 
The parts where we wonder, what in the world was Abraham thinking to do these things? A question which Abimelech actually poses to Abraham in this portion. He literally says, what were you thinking that you did this? How many times have we thought this question to ourselves? Reading this portion feels a lot like witnessing a dear friend who falls in the same trap again and again, the same patterns, the same mistakes, hurting those they care about most in ways you know they do not intend. But this portion has yet another famous tale in it, that of Abraham arguing with God in an attempt to prevent the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uncharacteristically, God admits God is uncertain of how to proceed after witnessing the great evil in those cities. God's instinct, as we see again and again in the Torah, is to destroy them. But instead, God decides to bring the issue to Abraham because as God says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God says, I have selected Abraham so that he may teach his children and those who come after him to keep the way of Adonai, doing what is right and just. This is the inheritance of the Jewish people. To keep the way of Adonai is doing what is right and just. The problem is, God didn't tell us what was right and what was just exactly. So much so that in this moment, God turns to a human for guidance to decide what is just and what is right. And Abraham takes on this role of sounding board well. Abraham asks God, will you indeed sweep away the innocent along with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 innocent people in the city, Abraham says. Abraham reminds God of God's core value of justice. Abraham says, far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to kill innocent and wicked alike. Far be it from you. Abraham says, must not the judge of all the earth do justly? And God agrees. Abraham works down famously asking then about what if there are 40 innocent people? And then 20, 30, and then 20, and finally 10. And God agrees for the sake of 10 innocent people, God will spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And 10 is where Abraham stops. Abraham asks no more, does not go down beyond that number. In this way, Abraham is acting as God's accountability partner in this story. And although it ends poorly for the people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the act of questioning one's destructive tendencies, even if they're gods, the act of asking one to evaluate the distance between their firmly held beliefs and their actions is a powerful and important model for us. The text is unclear as to why 10 is the minimum number. But of course, our commentaries speculate plenty. To be honest, it always bothered me that Abraham gave up. It sparked so many questions for me. Could it really be that there was not even one innocent soul? What made Abraham decide that he could no longer push God to save the city for the sake of even one person? What is meant by innocent or wicked anyway? Is anyone truly one or the other? No. These very verses from the Torah are where the idea of a minion, a group of 10 Jewish adults, originates. Traditionally, a minion is required to recite certain prayers, many of which we said or will say tonight, including the mourner's Kaddish, 
Their, a minion is needed to read Torah, to recite the seven blessings, the Sheva Brachot for a wedding couple, and so on. So why 10? The Eitz Chaim Torah commentary argues that it takes a critical mass to generate an alternative way of living. Isolated individuals, it says, cannot accomplish this. Said another way, when attempting to completely shift a culture, we need accountability partners. A minion at its core is about collective responsibility, the need to show up for one another, to show up in the wake of loss, in the work of memory, in the joy of celebration, and every day in between. This was the first time in studying this text that I connected the idea of a minion with Abraham's own failures, the things I judged him so harshly for. Abraham lacked a trusted accountability partner. After all, Abraham left everyone he had known behind. God's role was not to be Abraham's accountability partner in quite the same way. And Abraham's family at this point in his life consisted of his wives, his sons, and occasionally his nephew Lot and his family, adding up to a total of nine. Perhaps this portion is filled with so many excruciating, painful, traumatic events perpetrated by Abraham. Because he was attempting to create a new norm alone, he had no checkpoint. He lost track of his most important values, how much he cared for his family, the importance of justice, of caring, compassion. He lacked the ability to reflect and realign. And that's okay because this is the purpose of Torah, to give us such an opportunity. American theologian Judith Plaskow remarks, often the Torah holds up a mirror to the ugliest aspects of human nature and human society. It provides us with opportunities to look honestly at ourselves and the world we have created, to reflect on destructive patterns of human relating, and to ask how we might address and change them. By evaluating our sacred texts, by studying Torah together in community, we hold one another accountable to help each of us close the gap between who we are and who we hope to be. The concept of a minion is our reminder that we need one another. We need each other in this world. Judith Plaskow also asks, can we read these narratives in ways that strengthen our resolve to hold both ourselves and God accountable to standards of justice that we recognize and value and yet continually violate? I say yes. Unlike our mock trial for Abraham, we do not need to help each other grow by making our case on why someone, something someone else did was defensible or egregious as God and Abraham model. It is through asking sincere questions and reminding each other of the values we hold. We, like Abraham, will continue to fall short, but we are the lucky inheritors of his stories and that serve as a mirror into ourselves in hopes that we live more closely aligned to our values. And perhaps the lesson of the minion is to remind us that we need each other. We need our community in order to do this. Remember, you are never alone.